EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olya Jordanian, an EU Futures Project Coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is February 13th, and I talk to Felix Kavacek, a postdoctoral fellow at Oxford University and a visiting fellow at Harvard University's Center for European Studies. My name is Felix Kavacek from the University of Oxford. I'm here at Harvard at the Center of European Studies for the semester, and I usually work in Oxford as a researcher. Great. So my first question, what is the future emerging in the European Union? Right, so that's of course a very, very important and interesting question. Um, let me maybe say at the start that my research is not so much about like, the future as such that will emerge, but more about how ideas of the future come into play in the present. So what is their role in present political confrontations? What is the importance of fighting over what the future means? Um, and if I look at how political actors at the moment refer to and discuss the future of Europe, the biggest shift that I can see at the moment is that we move from a rather linear vision of European integration leading to a final state of, some, of an integrated unit to something which is much more open, which is more contingent, where it's unsure where we're actually heading to. So it seems like we have regained a certain understanding of history not being linear, um, which in the past seems to be have been the main view of thinking about European integration. And it's quite telling that if you look at the main paradigms of European integration, there's no theory of disintegration, but it's all about how can we increase integration. I mean, the like early theories of integration were about locking in integration, about predicting the state of integration, the different stages of how countries, how different policies will become more and more interlinked and therefore integrated. Um, and it's only with the Treaty of Lisbon that we eventually had the possibility actually of retreating from the, from, from the European Union, which shows how we used to think about European, European integration. And I guess it was a sensible way of thinking about the future of Europe in the past, this ever further integration. And if you look at like the spillovers from the European coal and steel community to like ever further status of European integration, that makes sense. But at the moment, it's no longer sensible to think in that way about the European future. And so the future that I can see is one where we'll think more about forms of disintegra disintegration and partial membership. And that is certainly something where, where the European discourse, the European political interaction at the moment moves to. I think another big change that we see at the moment in how people think about the future is that in the past, Europe was something which was valued on a very broad level. Like people had expectations about what Europe can do for them, how European integration can enhance their, um, be it economic competitiveness or their democratic institutions. And that seems to be different now. People have very different expectations um, as to what Europe can do for them. And some, like the Brits, think that Europe is actually an inconvenience for them, so that it matters or that it has a negative impact on how their country can perform economically. And that is, I think, a very important shift as to how people think about Europe at the moment. And so the Europe that I see at the moment is one which is less based on values and therefore has a, has a, has a reason to act in the future, but which is one where more and more we talk about 
yields when we talk not so much about there's a value of staying together but is it actually does it make sense in the current conditions to strike this deal and to increase integration or to like to act together and that is that is i think a very a very deep shift um so like from a from a rule-based to a deal-based future of europe um and we can see that again with the brexit debate where the debate about europe's future was all about the economic value the remain campaign and the leave campaign had a had a had a campaign about whether or not one should stay or not in the European Union, which was focused on on the economic value. But there was no debate about the value of staying in Europe as such, like as a political project, as a way of you know integrating politically, but it was about the economic the economic impact. Um, so that is yeah, that is one of the important shifts. Um, I think one future that we missed probably um, is that Brexit certainly provided a window of opportunity for reform um, and maybe the European Union could have done a better job at being more self-critical as well of the reasons of Brexit and um, thinking about the institutional setup and using the Brexit as an impetus for thinking differently about its own future. But what actually happens is that in the context of Brexit, the EU was accused of being bureaucratic and exactly what we see is a very bureaucratic European Union, um, which is not you know, politically inspiring. And I think that is a shame because that the Brexit could have been turned into a stimulus for doing thorough institutional reform because there are problems with the European Union and the European Union is aware of that. And in order to face the challenges for the future, this could have been a moment of, of reform, but this is very unlikely to happen. Um, and I have the impression that Brexit is more actually going to interlock the institutional problems that we have at the moment. It seems to be like a confrontation um, where there's no thinking about like partial memberships or ways of dealing with countries which don't want the entirety of the integration process um, and that is something which which is not being used and i think that's a, a very big loss for the future of europe um, in the current situation what do you think what can make the european union actually consider re revisit its uh, attitude toward um, the way it treats treats the member and actually go for reforms i mean go for reforming the institutions what might be, if, if not Brexit, if that, that was not the signal they need to change something, what else can, can make them revisit? Mm. Yeah, you wonder what else is needed. I mean, we've already, I mean, the pressure on democratic institutions in Europe is pretty high at the moment. And we've got Brexit, we've got populist voices emerging um, and being quite credible candidates in the upcoming French elections, certainly, and um, probably less so in Germany. And you, I mean, that is already a stage of pressure on the European Union where I think that should actually be enough to make this political structure critically examine what is not working rather than insisting on that it is the only alternative and, and trying to go further. So I can't really tell you what, what else is needed. I mean, I see there's a lot of pressure on these institutions and I'm a little bit surprised that there's not more political will to use this as like a critical juncture where one changes the institutional setup um, which would be an opportunity to make the European Union attractive again, which I mean, this is not happening. Um, so more pressure doesn't seem to doesn't seem to help there. Um, but yeah, it's hard to say. Describing your research, you wrote that future is a narrative product of discourse with real world counterpart, and also one of the topics of your or policy areas of your 
um, research is intergenerational justice, which is a very interesting concept. Can you please explain that a little bit and what impact it could have on really on, on, on determining the future and shaping the future in Europe? So the intergenerational justice is um, the idea that present generations don't only have obligations towards presently living people. So there's an obligation, I think we all agree on that, that the people who are currently alive, we do some redistributive policies so that people who earn less still have a decent standard of living or can make their living at least. And we do this by redistribution in the present time. And that is like pretty unchallenged. But with new challenges that humanity faces or that we at least became aware of over the last 20 to 30 years, such as climate change, for instance, or the long-term impact of policies such as increasing debt levels, um, there's an arising awareness amongst political actors that generational justice also goes over time, so that our actions in the present have an impact on the future, and that we therefore also stand in a moral relationship to people who are not yet born, but that we have to, you know, we, we, these are, will be moral beings, so we have to think about them politically, how we, how we impact their possibilities for a decent, flourishing life. Um, and our actions might well like, limit what these future people will be able to do. Um, and so in political, in political debates, in particular if we think about the environment, that's a key concern, because what we are asking for present, of present people is that they make certain sacrifices, that they consume less, that they're more responsible with natural resources in order for future people to be able to use those resources or to have conditions of living where still the population that the earth will have at that point in time can be maintained. Um, and that's the idea of intergenerational justice. How do you determine that responsibility from the presently living generation to those who are not yet there? And of course, the difficulty is we don't know who will be there, how many people will be living in the future, what they will enjoy, whereas it's quite clear if we do the justice calculations on only in the present time, we know what presently living people will need in order to have a decent life, but it's much harder to do these calculations for the future. So to think about people in 100, 150 years, what kind of natural resources do we need to leave for them? Um, but of course it's, it is crucial, in particular if you look in, at the environment, because our present actions will massively shape how future people will be able to live and enjoy the world that they live in. Um, so it should be a, a guiding principle in how we think about our political actions. Um, and some countries have implemented policies which take into account the impact on the future. So in particular, like different Scandinavian countries have either funds for future generations or have as part of their constitution the obligation to take into account the impact on future people. But that is still something which is emerging and it's not yet like a broadly shared political belief. Do you think there is a contradiction between this type of political thought and between, between the rising populism across Europe and how these two could, can coexist together in Europe? So one tension between the rising populism and thinking about the future is um, that mo the populist parties, they are defined by being limited to one state. I mean, they speak for one people. It's nous le peuple, it's we the people, it's determined by certain fixed national boundaries. But of course the future people will not be bound by these national borders, but they might, it's a, first of all, it's a transnational concept. I mean, if we think about environmental protection, it doesn't make sense to only think about 
the British or the French future people that we want to protect in the present, but this will be humanity as such. So the concept of intergenerational justice doesn't stop at national borders, which of course the populist parties are doing at the moment. I mean, there it is all about reifying and sort of having a very homogeneous view on the nation-state and, and what the national population wants, um, which is a contradiction with thoughts about intergenerational justice. Nicole Sluman asserts that what makes democracy special is that I, the very fact of keeping open of possibilities of future choice. How, so how do you see the role of choice in democracy in Europe? I would say choice is absolutely crucial. I mean, without choice, there's no democracy. If there were just one party to vote for, we not have a democracy, of course. Um, having said that, the idea of representative democracy, of course, means that we make certain choices and then from there we give responsibility to those who were elected in parliament. I mean, that limits choice because then we've got representatives that will take political decisions on behalf of those who voted for them. Having said that in the past, I think this plurality of voices of the people was still recognized even then once the choices were limited after election. Um, we were always aware in political discussions that the people were very plural. And that is thinking about where we are heading to for the future is something where I am a little bit concerned um, is that what we see at the moment coming from the US but also being more and more widespread in Europe um, is that after the elections the plurality of people is actually being denied. So we see that in the US, we see that in Brexit as well, where there was a very, very close vote in favor of Brexit, but now the political discourse is all about the people made a certain decision, the people gave us a mandate. So the, the, fundamental, in the fundamental role of choice is completely ruled out after the elections, which I think is very dangerous for a democracy as such. Um, and this is very similar in the current electoral campaigns in France and even to some extent in Germany, where it is already clear that certain parties, they want to limit the, the sheer existence of choice. By once they are elected, they will be the ones who speak for the people, um, yeah, who speak for the entirety of the people, which is then a very like Unitarian view on what the people actually are. And maybe it's also kind of an outdated view on democracy, that we just we vote for a parliament and then the parliament does whatever it does. Um, without any checks on it. So maybe, you know, what we recently saw with the possibility of a Trump state visit or an official visit by Trump to the United Kingdom, that is, I think, a nice example where the people made it clear that, you know, the elected representatives, the decision that they are going to take, was in contradiction with the will of a certain part of the British population. And they started this petition against an official state visit. And I think these kind of elements, they could bring this choice back to democracy, which is currently being reduced so, so much after elections and which I think is dangerous to the idea of democracy itself because people, they will feel increasingly disaffected and we need to find, I think, ways of bringing in these elements of consultation, petition, um, which are less disruptive than, than the referendum that we had. Um, but still, we need, we need to find ways to keep this choice and to keep people involved in the democratic process. You kind of already talked about my next question, which was, um, given that reaching to the head-looking political thought that's going to have effect on future generations is a long shot, 
and first shift, the first shift is happening actually in people's, in citizens' minds. Mm. How do you see the role of EU citizens uh, taking the lead in kind of bringing more issues into political agenda and actually leading the processes? Of course, beyond going beyond the participating in elections. Mm. Yeah, so I think fundamentally most citizens in Europe are still very committed to the values that Europe, quote-unquote, um, represents. I think they still a very deeply hold commitment to certain liberal values, to equality, to racial equality, to gender equality. I don't see that retreating, not yet. Um, and of course, if that happens, then the state of democracy in Europe will, will look much different. Um, but let's assume that for now these values are still being held. Um, I think people are quite quite ready to defend those values. We saw this with a petition um, in Britain, and there's a lot of these kind of petitions going on. And I think we haven't yet fully exploited just the potential of the internet for doing this. Um, and it would be wise for democratically elected leaders to actually use this consultative method even more, because that is one way of also taking the wind out of the sails of populist parties who will otherwise use you know the like the non-responsiveness of politicians to say that they are not legitimate because they don't listen to the people um, and maybe what we see at the moment in the US it's a long shot but maybe that actually does a favor to European democracy because I think if you look at the different European countries and the enthusiasm for instance that Macron generates at the moment in France um, maybe many European citizens realize that they don't want to have such a disruptive impact on their political institutions and on the political system as such, as one sees it in the US at the moment. Mm. And so that is, I think, something where European citizens, maybe they change their mind on how they would elect, but also on how they participate in the democratic process, because what comes clear at the moment is that democratic institutions, they're not a given, but they are constantly being, they are being made by the people who embody these institutions. And across Europe, one is very aware that in the US now, these democratic institutions are under great strain, the collapsing of judiciary, legislative and executive power that we see in the US increasingly, or at least a very blurred distinction between the three, um, I think worries many citizens who still value the checks and balances. So. Yeah, I would say that this, yeah, there's still this commitment to maintaining democratic institutions, which, um, yeah, maybe absurdly, maybe Trump has helped European democracy in that respect by making it clear that you know you need to you need to work on the democracy, otherwise it's not going to work. What kind of Europe would you like to see in future? You kind of answered mm. to that question at the beginning, but. Kind of concluding our conversation, what kind of Europe would you like to see in the future? Or in what kind of Europe would you actually like to live right. in? So the first thing to distinguish is that Europe and the EU are not the same thing. Um, and that, that's, that's definite. That's yeah. we, we try to kind of address both, yeah. both the European Union and Europe as a larger country. Yeah, and I think the EU, as the institutional embodiment, I guess, of of Europe, I would like to see an EU which is which is capable of being more self-critical about its own institutional setup and what it can offer to its citizens. Um, 
and which implements reforms that are needed to again create a certain kind of enthusiasm with the idea of Europe because that is what I think is a great risk at the moment is that the lack of success of the EU also impacts on how people think about Europe. I mean Europe is not necessarily something that is worth you know, that is creating a lot of enthusiasm right now. It did so in the Austrian elections, where the presidential elections were also, Europe was also a theme there, but I think that is more of an outlier. It is nothing that really can bring people out and, and motivate them. So, so that's probably the first thing, is a Europe where the idea of Europe is again something which people are committed to, and Europe standing for, you know, ideas such as gender equality, racial equality, um, equality of chances, and so on and so forth. And second point for that to happen, I think we need to stay committed to a Europe which is based more on values and principles and not on deals. And I think this development that we see at the moment of a Europe which goes more and more in the direction of present and short-term deals is a very dangerous dangerous development in political thinking. Because what made, what helped Europe develop and integrate over the last 50 years is a set of fundamentally whole principles and values that one shared um, and only through this commitment to values could the integration process actually have success otherwise if it's only short-term rational calculations on economic benefit this just doesn't work and from there like my one of my concerns would be for instance if um, the current protectionist discourse that we see coming from like all sets of conservative political parties, if this more protectionist discourse is one that is, for instance, being adopted by the left, that I think would be a great danger for Europe's future and not one where I would like to live in, because um, that would further like erase the differences between left and right. And if the left adopted this protectionist discourse now, I think that would be a, a great risk for the commitment of yeah for the for a commitment to Europe as such and because that is not I think what Europe is for it's not about national protectionist thinking but it's about the integration yeah and maybe a Europe which manages to use the energy of citizens better so which finds a way of institutionalizing petitions or public consultations and I think we haven't been sufficiently creative but um, in Ireland, there was the case of, of gay marriage, where they just chose randomly a different different people who were then asked to give their opinions and who participated in a debate on, well, why are they concerned or not about gay marriage? And these are ways of bringing in ordinary, quote-unquote, people, um, which I think makes the democratic process just much more transparent and appealing to citizens again. And and I would love to see that, that happening in Europe, that there's a more active integration of, of the population to make... Yeah, to, I guess, increase a certain commitment to the idea of Europe once again. Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. 
funded by Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.